Well, I want to say hello to everybody in this room and those of you joining us online. Happy Ascension Day. I know you're all probably super sick of having people say Happy Ascension Day to you. Sick of all those fancy lights and greetings and that Ascension Bunny and all the things our culture's been doing around Ascension Day. No, honestly, I, um, I have never paid very much attention to this day. Ascension Day is the day that we remember when Jesus, risen, ascends to heaven, goes up into the clouds. That is Ascension Day. I've never really given a ton of thought to this day. Okay, for, for one, it's always on a Thursday. So it was this past Thursday. And um, also, I guess I've just never really um, understood why to make a big deal about it, right? Like, I get Good Friday, the day that Jesus died for the sins of the world. I get Easter Sunday, where he defeats death and rises again. I, I understand Pentecost, where God's Holy Spirit is given. Um, I get those, but I think Ascension Day, I've just kind of been like, hmm, don't really know why we need to uh, make a big deal about that. Barbara Brown Taylor says, it seems like the day we were left behind. And uh, in preparation for today, I've been thinking about this day. And so we're just going to talk about uh, what it is, what it isn't, and why it matters. Ascension Day. The scriptures tell the story this way in the book of Acts. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. This is God's word. Okay, first, let's talk about what it is. Um, the scriptures, there's lots of different points at which the scriptures talk about this ascension moment when Jesus ascends into heaven. And one of the ways is talking about he, he ascended and is sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And it's really this moment when the king, King Jesus, returns to rule his kingdom. So for us, you know, thinking about the disciples there, for us it looks like a leaving. Jesus is leaving us, or he's leaving this earth. But really, for Jesus, it was a returning to the Father. And one of the reasons we emphasize, or Scripture emphasizes that he sat down, is because in Jesus' day, you know, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, is that in Jesus' day, priests, would always stand when they were doing their duties. And Jesus is said to be the high priest. So when he ascends and he sat down at the right hand of the Father, it is like the priest who always stood doing his duties sat down. Because it is done. It is finished. The work I went to do, I have done. 
And so he's, he's returning to rule. Um, in his book, Practicing the Resurrection, Eugene Peterson says this. Um, he's talking about the story of the church. Um, and he says, in the story of the church, ascension is, it's really the opening scene that establishes the context for everything that follows. Jesus is installed in a position of absolute rule. Christ our king. And all men and women live under the rule of Jesus. And this rule trumps all other thrones and principalities and powers. Jesus is installed in a position of absolute rule. So what is the kingdom of God? It is living in the rule and the reign of Jesus, living under the rule and the reign of Jesus. Too often, I think, when I've thought about the ascension of Christ, it's kind of like, I think about it like this sort of awkward explanation of of Christ. Like, I think after his resurrection, he's sort of like lifted up into outer space until the day when he returns, and he's just kind of, you know, hanging out with God until he comes back. But really... The way to think about this is he has established a kingdom that he rules. So the ascension, it's not about the absence of Christ. It's really about the ascendancy of Christ. That he is ruler and reign over all, uh, reigning over all of creation. The ascension of Christ to the right hand of God is like the rise the elevation, the ascendancy, the promotion of Christ to this position of what? All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? The ascension of Christ is not, um, it doesn't lead to the absence of Christ. It really leads to like the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit everywhere. That there is nowhere you can go that there is nowhere you can be that is outside of God's presence. God's presence is always in the presence, in, in the present with you wherever you are. So the, um, the reason that Christ can say, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, is because of the ascension. There is now no place where Christ is not. Like there's no domain over which Jesus is not Lord. One of the most um, famous passages in the Bible related to the ascension is Psalm 68. And it just simply says this. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to the people. It's interesting. Like God is always giving, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. And we know this. Like we know that God is given the gift of forgiveness and mercy and grace. God, God is given gifts, but at the ascension, there is a very specific gift that is given to you and to me. And it's often a gift that is just overlooked. The gift that is given that we often overlook, we read about in John 17, when Jesus says this, the glory that you have given me I have given them. And the them that Jesus is talking about is you and me. Those who would believe in me because of your message, Jesus says. So the glory that the Father gave the Son on that day when he ascended, 
that same glory that God gave Christ, he gives you. The point when you are glorified because Christ is glorified happens at the ascension. And here's the thing. Whenever God gives gifts, they're meant for both you and for the world. So it's not just me personally. It's also for the world. Like the cross was a gift done for us and for the world. The resurrection was a gift for us and for the world. Pentecost is a gift for us and for the world. And the ascension is a gift for us and for the world. When I was a little kid, um, my brother and I used to sing that old school Sandy Patty song called The Gift Goes On. It's like the words, the lyrics are like the father gave the son, the son gave the spirit, the spirit gives us life so we can give the gift of life. And the gift goes on, you know, this is <laughs> it's like really sing-songy. And like, if you know the song and I just stuck it in your head, I'm sorry, because you will now be singing it all day. But, you know, it's this idea that God gives gifts. And the gift of the ascension is that he has glorified the son. And the glory I've given to the son, I have given you. The son has given to you. It is that point when you are glorified because Christ is glorified. Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, she puts it this way. She says this, by ascending bodily into heaven, he, Christ, showed us that flesh and blood are good, not bad. They're good enough for Jesus, good enough for heaven, good enough for God. By putting them on, on and keeping them on, Jesus has not only brought God to us, he has also brought us to God. I mean, think about this. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, that's like the first time that like the dust of the earth, like the flesh and bone, like the humanity sat in heaven, sat on the throne. The ascension of Jesus to the throne is really like, it's like the ascension of humanity. Athanasius, the African who shaped a lot of the way that the church thinks and talks about the Trinity, um, he put it this way. He, he was referencing that phrase when in John, where it says the word became flesh, talking about Jesus as the word. And he says this of the ascension. It's not the word. In other words, it's not Christ that's improved at the ascension. For he had all things and has, has them always. But the human race, which has its origin in him and through him, that is the one who receives the improvement. Because of us, he asks for glory. It's like, and the gift goes on. God just keeps on giving. And there's a point to all this glory we've been given. There's a purpose. There is a job to do with it. Jesus, in his prayer, says what it's all about like five times. John 17, he says this, The glory that you've given me, Father, I've given them. That's you and I. 
Why? Like, what's the point? So that they may be one. As we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become completely one. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's like Jesus is saying, God, you gave me this glory and I gave it to them and I gave it to them so that they would be one and I want them to be one so that the world may know of your love. That's Jesus' vision. So why the ascension? Like what's the purpose of glorifying humanity? So that they may be completely one. So that the world may know. I in them, the love of God. Now, okay, um, love, <laughs> unity, the indwelling presence of Jesus, great, sounds great. But like, how do we get that out of our heads? What does that mean? What does the ascension really mean? What does it actually look like? Well, it's kind of cool because a little bit later in the book of Acts, we have a picture of what it looks like. We have a story about what it means. What it looks like to be one so that the world may know. And this is the story. There are two missionaries, Paul and Silas, already very major people in the early church. They have already had one missionary journey, and they're partly into their second one. They're heading to Europe. Um, basically into Macedonia and Greece. Um, the, and the reason they're going there is because Paul had this vision. And the vision was a man saying, come here, help us. So they get to this city called Philippi. And it's really their first stop in Europe. And Paul and Silas, they're looking for a synagogue in Philippi. But there's no synagogue. What that means, historically, is that there were not ten Jewish men to make up a synagogue in this city that they're going to be missionaries to and in. So there's not ten men. So they just are looking around, and one of the customs is to go down by the river. They go down by the river, and what do they find down by the river? That would be where Jews would go to meet if there was no synagogue. That's why they're going there. Still no men there, but there are some women who are meeting there down by the river for Sabbath. And Paul preaches, and a woman named Lydia says, that makes a lot of sense to me. I want to follow this ascended Jesus that you speak of. I want to follow Christ. And she says, would you please baptize me and my whole household? And she is not an ethnic Jew. She's called um, a worshiper of God. She's from the Asian side of what's now Turkey, from a city called Thyatira, Lydia from Thyatira. She is probably pretty wealthy because she's this merchant of purple goods. So people, scholars think she probably was pretty wealthy. She had a big enough home to host these missionaries in her home along with her whole family. And she probably had another home back in Thyatira, too. This is Lydia. So basically, the missionaries are, like, keeping a low profile. They're preaching among the women gathered down by the river. And then the story picks up a little bit, and it says this. 
Paul and Silas on this missionary journey, we met, it says, we've met a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. Now, it's interesting reading about this because historians, scholars figure that this slave girl was probably bringing her owners, her slave owners, like 200 times the normal wage. But, of course, she's enslaved to them. They kept her in slavery, and also they probably, possibly, were doing some pretty cruel things to her to encourage the kind of manic behavior that she had that made fortune-telling just more sellable, more profitable. So they meet her, and at one point, Paul casts out, casts the spirit out from this girl in the name of Jesus. And (laughs) as always, it's like the gospel of Christ is upsetting the economic system of that time. Setting captives free does not make the captors who are making like 200 times the daily wage very happy. So the Bible says this, her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone. It's John Stott, famous theologian, he said it like this. Her owners saw that Paul had exercised their income. So Paul and Silas face this reaction, right? These merchants are like mad. They are mad because they own this slave girl and they're making good money and now she has been, you know, they have, this is not working anymore. So the reaction is that these merchants, they incite a riot. And it really is like a nationalistic race riot. I mean, that's what's happening. The merchants who were making a lot of money from this slave girl get the Philippian people all riled up. And here's what the Bible says they say. They're saying, these men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. And they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. It's like, imagine that the merchants are saying this. The local leaders who are hearing the merchants like incite this riot They're probably not thinking, like, what is good and true and beautiful and right? They are thinking the rich people in town are upset. The guys with all the money in town want us to do something about these outsiders, Paul and Silas. Otherwise, we're going to have some serious disorder in this town. And that's going to attract Caesar's attention, and we don't want that. So maybe what we'll do is we'll just, like, do a little flogging of these Jews, these missionary guys, and um, that'll help keep the peace. Like tonight, we'll just kind of torture them in the dark, and then tomorrow we'll let them out of jail. They will be off and on their way, and everything will settle back down and be back to normal. And that's what they do. Paul and Silas, are they whip them, they strip them, they beat them, they throw them in prison, they put them in the stocks, which was not just putting them in jail, not just putting them in captivity, but like a form of torture. And the Bible says at midnight, way after they had been whipped, way after they probably should have been asleep, way after, I mean, the jailer is even 
asleep. Paul and Silas are playing and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners in the jail are listening to them. And the prisoners are probably shocked that Paul and Silas are rejoicing after all they've just been through. Paul and Silas are singing because they really understood the meaning of the ascension. Jesus is still in control, even here, even in this prison. And then comes this part that, like, really gets our attention because God shows his power. And then they're singing, they're praying. God shows his power. He sends an earthquake. The chains fall off of them. The doors of the prison open, and Paul and Silas miraculously escape into the night. Actually, that's not at all what happened. I was checking the Bible knowledge. Everybody's like, oh, cool. No, actually, that's like the story that would make sense, right? But that is not the story that happened. It's like Paul and Silas pray. God sends an earthquake. The chains fall off. The doors open. And Paul and Silas stay in prison. Like just hanging out. And now... I don't know about you, I, I think we're thinking, reading this story, like, uh, Paul, Silas, you know, when you pray for something and God answers your prayer, he gives you the very thing that you're asking for. Like, you might want to take advantage of it. Run, go. Prison doors are open. But Paul says, oh, you misunderstand you see, we were always free. We were always free. And we are just here to take this freedom we already have and give it as a gift to whoever we might meet. Paul knows he's the one who's free. The jailer is the one who's held captive and they also know that if they just flee and leave at this point, this jailer will die. And Paul and Silas have no need to gain further freedom at the expense of somebody's life because they had already been freed at the expense of somebody's life. Jesus' life had already freed them, had already made them free. So this earthquake, just it just gives the jailer the opportunity to be free. Paul and Silas, they're like, we're all ready. This prison, this is, this is just a circumstance. The jailer asks, like, you know, what do I do? Like, what, I mean, it's just, what do I do to be saved? And the answer, believe on the ascended Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And then the next day, so this all happens with the jailer. The next day, the magistrates, like the leaders, they come and they're like, okay, you can let those men go now right? Because their plan was like torture them and then just let them go and they will take off running. So the leaders come the next day. They say, okay, you can let these men go. And Paul says, actually, no, we're still not going. <laughs> and again, it's kind of like, okay, um, Paul and Silas, you've been given an earthquake that has freed you. The magistrates have come and freed you. Like, what is it going to take? 
And this is what the scriptures say that Paul says at this moment. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. When I read this part of scripture, I just think about John Lewis, that guy who marched with MLK and how he's like, when you see something that is wrong, when you see an injustice, make some trouble, make some good trouble, make some necessary trouble. That's, it's like that's what they're doing. They are making some trouble. Like they're not just going to leave. I mean, the police reported these words to the magistrates. They're not just going to leave. And all of a sudden, they're afraid. They are afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas are not going to leave and that they are Roman citizens. Now, here's a little um, thing we have to kind of understand the context. Why is this a big deal that they find out they're Roman citizens and that they're not going to leave? This is why. Because from history, we know Cicero said this, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime, to flog him an abomination. So the leaders were thinking, like, these are some Jewish people who have just, they didn't know they were Roman citizens. Like, that's a whole other thing. Now... It's like very bad news for the magistrates, the, the leaders, the magistrates. Very bad. They have broken the law. They're facing captivity now. They're facing punishment. And then what does Paul do? He passes on the goods to them. He's not going to pay them back for the evil that they've done. He is going to release them from that consequence and he has a very smart plan in mind. The Bible says this, so they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. It's like by making the magistrates personally and publicly escort Paul and Silas from prison to Lydia's house. It's like the whole city and all the slave owners are seeing like, ooh, it's not going to be quite so easy to like mess, mess with these new followers of Christ. So as Paul and Silas leave Philippi, it's kind of like, what church did they leave behind? They're missionaries. They go, they establish a church there. What kind of church do they leave? Surely there were a lot of people. They spent some time there. But the Bible is pointing out three people. And we could probably think about these three people in the story almost like representatives of the church. Surely they were not the only three. There's probably more converts there than, than that. But Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. That's what we read about. And I think the writer, the gospel writer, wants us to consider these people like representatives, right? You've got Lydia, a very rich woman. You have a slave girl who had nothing at all, penniless and totally exploited by her owners. You've got the jailer who's probably a middle-class government worker. So in other words, this is a church that transcends economic classes. You could look at it another way, like Lydia from Thyatira, not Jewish, but definitely Middle Eastern, an Asian immigrant. The slave girl was almost certainly Greek, probably a local to that area. 
and then the jailer. Almost certainly a former Roman soldier because that was the kind of regular government job that would have been given to those who had served in the Roman army. In other words, this is a church that transcends the city's ethnic boundaries. You could look at it this way. Lydia found Jesus through like intellectual discussions over the Jewish scriptures down by the river. You've got the slave girl who found Jesus through this like dramatic act of deliverance, this act of power. You've got the jailer who found Jesus in this like totally unexpected act of mercy and grace and forgiveness. In other words, this is a church that transcends spiritual types and spiritual needs and Enneagram numbers and Myers-Briggs types and all that. See, Rome at that time was was a superpower, was an empire, and Rome had a story about what would unite people. There was a story, one nation under Caesar, indivisible. I don't know if I said it like that, but right? This is Rome has a, has a story. And that is the story that is to unite the people together. But what we're seeing is there are all these divisions in Rome. So many divisions in Rome. Nationalistic, racist anti-Semitic, religious bigotry, all these divisions. There actually was a prayer that was so common. It's all over historians, you know, looking back. There was a Jewish prayer where Jewish men would go into the synagogue. They would literally pray these words. They would say, blessed art thou, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's like a common prayer. Thank you for not making me a Gentile slave or a woman. And Luke, the gospel writer, is like, hey, who? look who makes up this church, a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. The early church says we are not united by Rome or by Caesar. We are united by the ascended Christ. It's in the ascended Christ that there's no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female. We are completely one so that the world may know the love of God. So, you know, we put ourselves in this story right now. We study the story. We think about the story. And we're kind of left with like a couple questions for us today, right? First of all, do you put as high of a priority on unity across economic lines, across ethnic lines, across spiritual interests, across political lines, or other opinions, as Jesus did. And then second question is, if you find yourself in prison or like in some form of captivity, are you singing hymns and praying there? And have you thought, if you find yourself in some prison or you find yourself in some captivity, have you thought about what will you do 
when you experience freedom. Not in a bargaining sort of way, like, God, if you give me this freedom, I'll do this for you. Not that. But just that gifts given are meant to be passed on. The Father gave the Son. The Son gave the Spirit. And the Spirit gives us life so that we would give the gift of love. That's how it works. That's the Eucharist way. When I am freed, when you are freed, and you have been, and you will be, your freedom is not for you alone. It's for the world. Christ has ascended, and everything now is under his rule and reign. To live in the kingdom of God is to live in the rule and the reign of Christ Jesus. This is why we can say, although our scrolling may say otherwise, we can say we live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. That kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are we. Because the glory that God, that God gave Christ at the ascension, he's given you. And he's given you that so that we may be one, so that the world may know that the gift goes on and on and on. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect triune love and grace. And we sense you drawing us into that dance the dance of eternal love that from before the foundation of the world you have been there and you invite us now to live there too. May we receive your love, may we live in your love and may we spread your love to everyone we meet. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.